I haven't seen the movie, uh, but I've heard the Barbie movie has an astoundingly deep moment. Actually, it's, it's got many, but this is the one that sets the story up. All the Barbies and Kens are partying and dancing. It's the best night ever, like it is every night in Barbie world. Out of nowhere, in the middle of the beats and sparkles, Margot Robbie's character asks, Hey, does anyone ever think about dying? Everything stops. After a few awkward moments, Margot corrects herself. Oh, I really meant I'm just dying to dance. And the beat drops and everyone gets back to normal. Everyone gets back to the party. It's a profound moment of art imitating life. This is our world. Our prosperous, comfortable, luxurious world. No one thinks about death. We put the frail and aged where they can't be seen. A few people have funerals. Instead, it's a celebration of life. And there is something right about that. It's good to give thanks to God for his kindness throughout someone's life. But it's not right if we're ignoring reality. At the funeral, our friend, our colleague, our family member is now dead. It's time to cry, not celebrate. Part of the reason in our culture we don't think about dying is we've got no idea what happens when we die. Or if we do have an idea, it's one without basis and it's one without hope. But have a look at the Bible. Have a look at 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and at 5.11. When the Bible faces the issue of dying, when it talks about what happens after we die, the message of the Bible is encouragement. It's uplifting. It's good news of hope. Now, in this letter, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks about dying because believers are confused. Uh, They're unsure because they've heard the gospel that Jesus has defeated death, but Christians are still dying. Some believers have died, so the living are wondering how the gospel is still good news. Maybe they're wondering whether the deceased believers are going to miss out on eternity with Jesus. But Paul says, no, the gospel means as we grieve for believers who die, we grieve with hope. So have a look at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Uh, The question Paul's answering for us, it's a bit strange for us. It's strange because after 2,000 years, plenty of Christians have died. We expect it. We expect to go to Christian funerals. It's also not a question we're asking because we've read 1 Thessalonians before. But it is a question I often get with children. In RI classes, you teach John 3.16, whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish. What do the words on the page say, shall not perish? It's a fair enough question. Hang on, you're now saying shall not perish in the Bible, but I see Christians perish all the time. The fact that believers die seems to contradict John 3.16. So do you get the question? Well, Paul already has hinted at the answer uh, straight away in verse 13 when he talks about those who sleep in death. Uh, Paul's echoing the way Jesus spoke. When Jesus' friend uh, Lazarus had died, he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I'm going there to wake him up. Why did he say sleep, even though Lazarus was dead and buried? He said sleep because in the presence of Jesus, even death is temporary. Yes, believers die, but in Christ, death is temporary. And because of this, the way Christians grieve is different. Yes, Christians grieve. Christian funerals should be sombre. You're allowed to cry and weep at funerals and in the following weeks and years as grief hits. We are to weep. Death reveals this world is not how it should be. We grieve because we miss the person. But if our loved one was trusting in Jesus, as we grieve, we also hope. And it's not a vague hope, oh, he's in a better place. It's a hope based on solid reality, the work of God in history. And it's this hope we're going to dig into in the rest of this passage. So there are two reasons for our grieving with hope. The first is that believers will be resurrected. Uh, The second is believers will be forever with Jesus. So first, hope because of resurrection. Uh, You sometimes hear even Christians try to comfort grieving people. And they comfort by saying something like, well, Uncle Bob's with Jesus and the angels now. That's not where the Bible places our hope. Instead, when asked about the death of believers, Paul goes to the ultimate and eternal hope, resurrection. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I went to a funeral last year. It was a a funeral of a beautiful, faithful Christian lady. It was tremendous to hear of her deep, abiding faith in Jesus. But it was disappointing because hope of resurrection, resurrection was not mentioned once. There was plenty of talk of her being with Jesus now, which the Bible affirms, but that's what's called the intermediate state. It's not our hope. The intermediate state is something the Bible says very, very little about because our true hope is resurrection. Just as Jesus died and rose again, that is going to be the story for most Christians. We'll hear in a moment there will be one generation of believers who don't pass through death, but for the vast majority of believers, Christ's story is our story. Death and resurrection. And the parallel works on two levels. One, just as Jesus died, believers will die. John 3.16 doesn't mean Christian graveyards are empty, but it means they will be empty. Because two, just as Jesus rose to glorious, physical, embodied resurrection life, that's what every single believer will experience. Lots of religions believe in an afterlife. Mormons believe you'll become the god of your own planet. Hindus and Buddhists believe in reincarnation, life again as another being on this planet. But the gospel promises resurrection. And it's not just an idea, it's not just a belief, it's reality because of Jesus' resurrection. Since Jesus died and rose, his people will die and rise. And this hope of resurrection is being forever personally and physically in the presence of Jesus. And we find out how this will happen. Uh, In the next few verses, Paul describes what's often called the rapture. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, 
we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, the word rapture comes from the Latin translation of these verses. So if you were reading this Bible in Latin, and I'm not going to challenge you, I don't think any of us can do that, but if you were to do that, the words caught up in verse 17 is the Latin word rapture. Now, some Christians are quite obsessed with this word. Last year, I was sent a sample of a book by Dr. David Jeremiah. I'm actually not familiar with him. I've heard his name mentioned before. He's an American pastor who's got a TV show in Australia. I didn't read much of the book because I got to chapter one where he made a claim. His claim was the word rapture occurs 14 times in the New Testament. On one level, he's right. The word that gets translated rapture in the Latin or caught up appears 14 times. The problem is only once has it got anything to do with the return of Jesus? His point that he was making by this claim is that the rapture is a central teaching of the Bible, 14 times. But 1 Thessalonians 4 is the only time this being caught up together in the clouds is mentioned in the Bible. I don't know if he was being deliberately misleading or he's just sloppy in the way he handles God's word, but my point is, this particular part of the Bible's teaching of the return of Jesus, it's not the main focus. Uh, some people have got pretty creative ideas about the return of Jesus. Uh, somewhere in my teen years, I saw a 1970s movie claiming to reflect the Bible's teaching on the return of Jesus. And it much it must have impacted me because uh, once I was having a sleepover at a mate's place and I dreamed that Jesus returned the way this movie portrayed, where all of a sudden a bunch of people disappeared, planes started falling out of the sky because their pilots were no longer there. You know, they were all snatched away in secret, and then others, including myself, we were left behind. And I woke up thinking, well, this is a bit of a strange dream to have, until I, I said to my mate, and then he, I told the story to my mate, and he said, I had the same dream. Panic set in. And it took me a few moments that, to realise that he was, he was pulling my leg. Uh, the dream grew out of what some teach about the return of Jesus, that there's going to be a secret rapture, a secret catching up into the clouds, after which all sorts of things will continue within history. But have a look at verse 16. Now, verse 16 uses picture language, but whatever the trumpet and angelic voice means, it's not secret. This is a loud public event. And it's an event that in, in the blink of an eye is the end of history. I take it this event is the same event described in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a key chapter teaching the physicality, the real bodiness of resurrection. In verses 52 to 53 it says, the, transfer, the transformation from death to resurrection life happens in an instant. Have a listen. In a flash. 
In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. I'm not sure why some think there are a thousand years of history to still unfold, that there'll be life and death in a fallen world after the resurrection. No, Jesus returns and immortality begins. So if the picture isn't of a secret rapture, after which history continues for those left behind, what's being described here? Why do believers, both those who've died and those who are alive, when Jesus returns, why does the Bible say we're going to be caught up together with Jesus in the sky? In the ancient world, when a victorious king came home, often a trumpet would, would, be, would sound, and when you hear the trumpet, you the citizens, you would be told it's now time to go out and welcome home the victorious king. You'd go out and be the victory parade. It's not unlike earlier this year, the coronation of King Charles. People were drawn out of their homes. They lined the streets to cheer and wave flags to celebrate the coronation of their king. That's the hope being described here. Believers being caught up to usher the Lord Jesus, following him in a victory parade, praising Jesus, our victorious king coming to consummate his kingdom, to abolish evil, punish the wicked, and forever be physically present with his people in a world made new. For many people, including Christians, what they've heard about the rapture makes them anxious. I was anxious after that dream, particularly because of my mate. But what the Bible actually teaches, verse 18, should encourage us. This is our certain hope, whether we're alive or dead when Jesus returns, we're gathered together to celebrate his coming. Now, this is our great hope. And sometimes when something good's going to happen, you want to know when. But God says we're not to speculate about these things. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, having heard those words from the start of chapter 5, you might be thinking, I've been leading you down the garden path. If the return of Jesus is so good if it should be encouraging for us to know that Jesus will return to make all things new, why does Paul compare it to a thief and pain? It's because the return of Jesus is a two-sided coin. For believers, it's forever being physically present with Jesus, but for those outside of Christ, destruction will come and they will not escape. That's what the day of the Lord is about. Do you see that phrase in verse 2? Uh, The day of the Lord is a common term throughout the Bible. It refers to the day of God's judgment and salvation. When Jesus returns, when our victorious king comes, with his people streaming in behind him, he comes to bring salvation for his people and eternal destruction on his enemies. And no one knows when it's going to happen. It'll be like a thief in the night. Thieves don't drop a note in your letterbox. Dear householder, next Tuesday at 10pm, masked bandits will be coming to take your TV and jewellery. No, thieves comes when you're not expecting. 
and it'll be like labour pains. Now, I'm not a lady and I can't really speak about this, but labour pains are a little bit different to thieves in the night. You might go your whole life without getting robbed, but if you're pregnant, labour will come. Uh, The point of labour pains isn't so much being unexpected, though as the due date approaches, you don't know if it's going to be today, tomorrow or next week. The picture is of something inevitable. You don't know precisely when, but it will happen. The return of Jesus is the same. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension guarantees it. And just a little thing to note, have a read again of verse 3, while people are saying, peace and safety. Now, I don't want to push this too far, but it suggests Jesus will return when we least expect, when things seem to be calm and comfortable in the world. With war in Israel and Palestine, with Russia at war, some Christian teachers are turning up the anxiety dial and they'll be saying that these things are signs of Jesus' return. But 1 Thessalonians 5.3 suggests times of upheaval are the least likely time of Jesus' return. It's when we're all saying peace and safety, he will come like a thief in the night. And since no one knows the day or the time, God calls us not to speculate or listen to fake end times watchers. No, God calls us to trust in Jesus and live faithfully for him all the time. Verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're not in the dark about his return. This isn't because... We've cracked the secret code of the day of the Lord. It's not because we've worked out the signs of the times. No, it's because we live continually in his light. And so when Jesus returns, if you are trusting in him for salvation, if you know you are forgiven of all your sins because Jesus took the penalty on the cross, you're ready to meet him. Uh, Living in the light, think about the the story, the the parable, the, the picture of the thief in the night. If you're living in the light, if you're trusting in Jesus, it's like you're sitting there comfortably on your couch, all the lights are on, and so when the thief comes through the window, you say, oh, oh, I was wondering when you'd show up. Now, of course, the the return of Jesus being face-to-face with the resurrected Son of God is going to be nothing but casual. It's going to be anything but casual, okay? It's going to be awesome in the full meaning of the word. But my point is, if you're trusting in Jesus, living for him in the light, his return won't be a shock, but a welcome event. So how do we live in the light of Jesus' return? Verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another 
and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. If we know Jesus is going to return to punish sinners with eternal destruction and save those who belong to him, then Christians are to live like the light of Jesus is already here. We're to be self-controlled. We're to be shaped by faith, hope and love. There's lots of pressure to give up on Jesus. We suffer. We suffer in a world where death strikes. We live in a world where those who don't believe in Jesus, they have no hope and may drag us down. But God has given us armour to withstand the pressure. Faith. Keep trusting Jesus. He died and rose again to guarantee your eternity. Love. Keep loving Jesus. Keep loving your church family. Keep loving neighbours and enemies. Jesus loves you. He loves you enough to die for you, to save you for himself. Hope. Even death can't kill the hope of the gospel because in Jesus, our eternity, our resurrection eternity is certain. Instead of grieving without hope, instead of being anxious about the end of the world, the day of the Lord, brothers and sisters, we can be encouraged. We have eternal assurance. Assurance of salvation, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. No matter whether we live or die, because of Jesus' resurrection, eternal life is a certain bet. We need to hear this biblical encouragement, especially when we're feeling the pain of a broken world. When we're feeling the intense grief of losing a loved one, or the groaning of creation in droughts, bushfires, cyclones or floods, or when we see the deep evil of sin as missiles and rockets are fired, drones are unleashed in order to kill and destroy, as people are murdered by people they trusted in our own nation. In this world, there'll be trouble and pressure In Jesus, there is encouragement and hope. Unlike Barbie, it's good for us to think about dying because it gives us hope, resurrection hope. In Christ, we're enabled to live in the light of that hope. As we finish, I want you to answer this question for yourself. If you were to die today, what would happen? If your answer is, I think I'll go to heaven, I, I think I've been good enough, That's not an answer from the gospel. The gospel gives us assurance. Jesus died and rose again to give believers firm and certain hope. If you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, if Christ died and rose again for you, you can be certain when you die, you'll be forever with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, there are many things that give us anxiety, that cause us to worry, Please give us encouragement in the certain hope of Jesus' return and the resurrection of his people. Help us to look forward to the day when we will be caught up with Jesus and then continue to live forever with him in a world made new. Strengthen us to live in the light of his return, to put on faith, love and hope as our armour against the pressure of darkness. For the sake of Jesus we ask. Amen.